a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. And Joe, we're going to talk about something where you are the world's expert. And it must be great to be the world's expert on something that people care about. Um, So this winter, congressional Republicans passed a massive tax bill that affects really everything from the corporate tax rate to prohibiting companies from giving gift cards as employee achievement awards. And one senator tried to slip in a provision about a single college in uh, in uh, Michigan. And it reminds me of a case I worked on, actually, when I was clerking at the Supreme Court back in the 1980s that involved the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1981. And they were, they were going so fast to get the bill passed that they enacted it with a bunch of lobbyists' phone numbers in the margins. So they're actually part of the bill. And I wonder, this time around, it seemed like it went very fast. Is this an unusual tax bill for us? It was an unusual tax bill because there was no congressional debate on it. it. This was a bill passed by one party without the debate, which slows things down. So one of the things that means is there are provisions in there nobody understands, including someone like me who, if not the world's expert, certainly knows enough to bore the pants off most people. Well, you are Stanford's expert on taxation. You're the Ralph M. Parsons Professor of Law and Business. You are one of the co-authors of the leading casebook for law students on tax law. You've testified in front of Congress and other legislative bodies. You actually tried to make it possible for people in California literally to do their taxes on the back of a postcard. And so I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness here. I'm just in the presence (laughs) of greatness. So, Joe, one of the things that I think everybody's asking about the tax bills, who are the big winners and who are the big losers? I mean, other than me, is there going to be anybody in America paying taxes after this? Well, good news, Pam. I'm joining you. The big winners are multinational corporations. Their taxes are going to go down roughly to zero from about $400 billion a year. Uh, their rates go down. Their worldwide income, that is foreign income, is completely tax-free, and they get to write off the cost of all new manufacturing equipment. That's equivalent of getting an unlimited IRA deduction. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you said to me once when we were talking about this was that there were actually people who were going to have like a negative tax rate at the end of this. Can you explain what that means? Well, that's what happens when you put so many goodies in one package. Smart tax lawyers instantly look at it and figure out how to get even more than you think you've given them. So, for example... I've said that a lot of big companies are going to get a complete deduction for all their expenses, uh, all their investments, excuse me. So, But they're still going to be able to deduct interest expense, and they're going to be able to deduct that at a time when their tax rate is going to be 30%. And then next year, their tax rate is going to go down to 20%. So you give that to a smart tax lawyer or an accountant, and they can perform some magic by getting a deduction at 30% and giving it back at 20%. Voila, you've made money on the round trip. 
So they're the winners. Who are the losers? Well, in some sense, if you didn't win, you're a loser. It's like they say, if you don't know who the sucker is at the poker table, Look in the mirror. it's you. Yeah. Because the winners all know who they are. So one way to look at it is that the big companies won. And, of course, the big companies have a lot of employees. Maybe some of the employees win. Their owners win. That's a lot of people. The so big companies comprise more than 100 persons under the law. Uh, wealthy individuals in blue states lose. They lost their state and local tax deduction. So that's one loser. And then, as maybe we'll talk about later, since this bill doesn't pay for itself, we've all signed an IOU for five to ten to $20,000. And in that sense, if you didn't win, you lost because you signed that IOU. Yeah, so one of the things that I've read is that a huge number of people who were deducting stuff, they were taking itemized deductions, filling out all yeah. those forms, they're not going to do that anymore. Why is that? Well, first of all, they just lost one of their biggest deductions. So if you're in New York or California or Illinois, your state and local tax deduction is limited to $10,000. And that's for both like your state, your property tax on your house and your income that's tax? That's right. And a lot of taxpayers are already paying $10,000 a year just on property tax or more. That means their income tax is state income tax completely non-deductible. Here's a question I've often had, Joe, which is I know I pay local taxes. So my property taxes are local. They're to my county. I pay state income tax. I pay federal income tax. And when I file my federal income tax forms, I deduct my property tax, which is a local tax, and I deduct my state income tax. Why do we allow that deduction? And can you tell me a little bit about how this bill changes that? That's right. Well, we've always allowed some deduction for state and local taxes. And the best explanation or justification of that is you don't have that money. So once your state takes that money from you, you don't have it, so we shouldn't tax you on it. That's why you're allowed to deduct it. Now, there's an alternative way of looking at it. It's saying you don't have the money, but you have better services. You're in a high-tax state, so your roads are better, your schools are better, and so on. So why should low-tax states subsidize high-tax states by giving them this tax deduction. So state and local tax deductions, we tax lawyers sometimes refer to them as SALT, state and local tax. It's a little acronym, a little tax talk. Uh, that's always been a little controversial. Last year, you could deduct all your property tax and either your income tax or your sales tax. This year, your deduction's limited to 10000 bucks. Which means if you live in a high-tax state like California, you're going to have to declare a lot more in the way of income. Absolutely. And what does that mean in terms of what their tax their taxes will look like? How does that interact with the tax rates? Well, it means that your state taxes, which used to be deductible, aren't anymore. So if you're in California, you might pay 14% state income tax. It used to be you could deduct that, and your real cost was only about 9%. So that's an extra 5% increase in your overall tax So rates. your taxable income will go up because you can't take that's that right. off of your taxable that's income. Right. So even if your rate goes down, right. you might end up paying You're more. You're still paying more. And for states, it's kind of disastrous because... Uh, what it means is that if you're in a blue state, which might have a lot of progressive programs, the cost of that tax is just skyrocketed, and you risk losing business 
to red states or low-tax states. So California borders Nevada. The tax rate is 0%. It's 0% in Texas, which has a kind of a high-tax sector around Austin and so on and so forth. So if you're in California or thinking about funding California, you've now got to worry about taxpayers leaving the state. And do we know anything from the past about how likely it is that people actually move from one state to another for tax reasons? It's a great question, and we know in general people move less than we might think. People have a life there, they have a community, they have a family. In the short run, people don't move very much. But we're really testing it in two ways. First of all, California really increased its taxes to a kind of historically high rate, and now that becomes deductible, making those taxes that much higher. So we're really in a terra incognito in terms of what's going to happen now. And what about people towards the bottom of the economic spectrum? Does this tax bill have any effect on them? doesn't do much for them. They get a bigger standard deduction, which is better, but they don't get to deduct separately an amount called an exemption for their kids. In general, they'll look a little bit better off if you ignore the fact that the tax act increases a deficit, which we all have to so, pay. But, but like for the Mother Hubbard is going to be worse off because she has so many kids in the shoe, she doesn't know what to do. Mother but Hubbard, yes. a poor person with, say, two kids might do better. Might do better by a little bit. Yeah. So, so what about charities? I mean, one of the things you hear from some people is people give money to charity so they can deduct it. And if they now can't deduct it because they're taking the standard deduction, they're not going to give the money. Is that, is that a risk? Well, charities will lose a little bit, but a lot of their money comes from the very wealthy, and they'll still be taking that deduction. This is Stanford Legal, and today Joe Bankman and I are taking a day for ourselves just to talk about taxes because Joe is such an expert on federal tax on the federal tax system. So a moment ago we were just talking about how this is not good for the high-tax states, that now those taxes are higher on the people who live in those states because they can't deduct them. They may be worried about uh, competition from next-door states or even states far away that don't have income taxes to deduct or that just just are lower taxes generally. So do those states have any options? Or if you're in a blue state, is that a screwed state? Well, uh, it's at least a somewhat screwed state, Pam. But a, a number of academics and I have suggested a couple options for the blue states. One of the options is transforming the individual income tax, which is not deductible, to a business tax because the new act allows companies to deduct all their taxes, including their state taxes. So if your company paid a payroll tax, that would be deductible, even though if you pay an income tax on that same amount, it wouldn't be. That's that's staggering, Joe. So in other words, if I became a company, I could yes. deduct my taxes? That's right. So are there going to be you know, $99 on the internet, become a company? websites for people to become companies so that they can start deducting everything? Well, we are seeing, as a, a tax lawyer, and I talk to other tax lawyers, we are seeing a movement toward becoming a company. You're right. It's not just for that, Pam. The new act also has a new 20% deduction for small business. So people who now think of themselves as just getting wage income or just getting consulting income 
all of a sudden they can reframe themselves, Pam, as a business. And if you qualify, your tax rate just went down effectively by 20% because 20% of your income is now tax exempt. So a couple of, a couple of shows ago, we had folks on to talk about the gig economy. Yeah, and right. were people better off under the gig economy than under the old economy where they were employees? That's right. And we talked about some of the advantages and disadvantages. And what you're telling me is under this bill – being a gig worker could be better than being an employee because as a gig worker, you can turn yourself into a small business. Uh, you know, Joe's driving for Uber, and then you can start uh, using the small business exemption. That's absolutely right. The big caution of this is the rules that say who can do this are incredibly, insanely complicated. So as someone who's just tried to explain it to other law faculty who teach the subject, I don't know that I completely understand them. So the average person is going to have to wait a while to figure out whether he or she qualifies. One thing Congress made sure of, Pam, is that law professors like us can't qualify. I, I just knew it. I could just I hate feel to, it. Coming. I could feel that. Coming. I hate to I give you that it. bad news. So one thing that I think a lot of um, a lot of folks don't know about, and I know only a very little about it, is the IRS does these things called revenue rulings and the like that tell people kind of what they can and can't do. Could you explain a little bit how that's done? Well, uh, everybody wants to figure out what the law is. And the IRS helps taxpayers by issuing pronouncements, administrative pronouncements, here's how we regard the law. And of course, the meta king size pronouncement like that's called the Treasury regulation. The Treasury uh, issues it. And of course, the IRS is just a subdivision in the Treasury. So the IRS will eventually issue these pronouncements. Now, the average person could never understand them. But your tax preparer can. So those pronouncements go from the IRS to your tax preparer to you. So this is Stanford Legal. And today, Joe Bankman and I are talking about the new tax bill. And I actually remember one of these from a bunch of years back, Joe. You probably remember it as well, which was one that allowed um, couples that were registered domestic partners under California law essentially to income split as a community property state, which allowed you essentially to do something that was like filing like married if you were a same-sex couple in California. That's right. You, so, You expecting to see stuff like that come well, out of this bill too? We're going to have to see a whole spate of IRS pronouncements to, tr to help us figure out this bill, including Treasury regulations, because as it stands, there are provisions that are flatly contradictory. For example... Uh, there's a provision that says if you invent something, that's not a capital asset. And that's important because you want capital gains when you sell something. So that apparently says that if you're an inventor and you get a patent, it's not a capital asset. You don't get capital gains. Which is a problem for you at the back end. <laughs> but there's another provision that's left in that explicitly says you get capital gains when you sell a patent. So which provision controls? Yeah, and I want to go back to also like what the states can do because one of the things you said the states can do is they can swap in a payroll yeah. tax for an income tax. Is there anything else they could do? Well, what we're thinking about in California is allowing taxpayers to make a charitable contribution to a directed part of the state. Now, you can always make Cause, it— Because charitable contributions are still totally deductible. That's right. 
charitable contributions are deductible at the federal law, and the statute says that if you give money to the state, you get that deduction. So suppose that California, instead of just giving you a tax deduction at the state level for a charitable contribution, also gave you a tax credit, and you directed some part of the tax you owed to the University of California system. Could you explain the difference between a deduction and Thank credit? Because I bet there are a lot of people who don't know that. Absolutely. A credit's a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction in the tax you owe. A dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction. A deduction just reduces your taxable income. So if you're in the 10% state tax bracket, a deduction of a dollar reduces your state tax by a dime. It's 10%. A credit of a dollar actually saves you a dollar on your state tax. So a credit is more powerful than a deduction. So suppose the state made charitable contributions at the state level more and more attractive. Could we get to a point that if you gave money, say, to the University of California at the state level, you could only bear 20% of the cost because you got an <coughs> suppose we change things so at the state level if you gave $100,000 to the University of California you could get an $80,000 state tax credit that reduced your state tax by $80,000 could you still get a deduction for the contribution if so then you'd be better off because you could deduct $100,000 as opposed to the paying an income tax where you can't deduct it. The state would be better off because since your deduction, your credit was less than 100%, you would still owe the state more money. You'd end up paying $120,000 to the state. And maybe democracy would be better off because we'd have this experiment of taxpayers being able to direct some of their tax to something that made them feel good about themselves in the state. Yeah, although I got to say I worry about that that you know in the sense that a lot of the money that the state gives is for social services for yeah. people who aren't capable of voting cuz they're kids or uh, aren't wealthy enough to purchase the things for themselves like public education as opposed to sending your kids to private school. I'd be a little I'd be a little nervous if we just let every individual decide how the state's going to spend their money. Well, it's a good point, Pam. And to deal with that, proposals that urge this, like the one that I've supported at the state level, first of all, reimburse the general fund so that there's no threat of social services getting less. But it is the case, Pam, that the overage, so to speak, the extra 20 percent in my little example, is going to go the way the taxpayer slash donor directs. And that's a little bit different. And you could like that or dislike that. Well, we'll be back with more discussion of the tax bill in just a moment. Next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. Giving you the chance to impress your friends with your knowledge of the law. This is Stanford Legal. Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman, and today we're talking about the recent federal tax bill. Joe, one of the things that 
you talked about a moment ago that really stayed with me as you said, well, you know, you're going to need like a really good accountant and you're going to need a really smart tax lawyer and the like. And as I recall, we were promised that we would get a new tax bill that would allow us to essentially uh, file our taxes on a postcard. That's not going to happen here. Um, why is it more complicated? I thought we were promised something to be less complicated. Well, we were promised that, but honestly, Pam, nobody believed that of either party. You could have massive changes that would make it easier to file. That was never in the cards. What was in the cards this time was reducing the tax on corporations. So what this bill does is it'll simplify things for a number of people who will be taking the standard deduction their taxes will be simpler. It'll be more complicated for everyone that's trying to get that 20% bonus that comes from being a business instead of an individual. All told, it's probably about a wash. So are there ways of making the tax system simpler, and what would they be? Well, one way that I've pushed, uh, Pam, is having the state tell you what's in its file, what it already knows about you. Because we know the most complicated things about filing taxes is keeping track of all these little mysterious things like the $32 in interest that you earned last year from the bank. But, you know, the IRS already has that information. So they could start the ball rolling by giving you that information in downloadable form. I mean, think of a visa uh, bill, Pam. Visa doesn't start off by giving you a blank piece of paper and say, write down all your purchases, do all the math, and by the way, if you're wrong, you'll pay a penalty and you could go to jail. They start the ball rolling by telling you what's in their computer. Yeah, so there are other countries that do that, right? Is Almost like the rest of the world does it. We have the most complicated filing system by far. So why do we have the most complicated filing well, system? Well, when we tried to change it, and I say we, it's myself with a, a big group of reformers, we found that, surprise, some members of the tax preparation industry didn't like it, uh, most typically Intuit, which is a manufacturer of TurboTax. So we can thank the computer for this, too. So one of the things is this bill the president and the members of Congress who support it keep calling it a tax cut. And it does seem to be cutting taxes. I mean, you told us about multinationals paying $400, mil, 400 billion and now they're paying zero. Yeah. But we didn't cut spending, did we? No. So where where is that going to come from? Well, it's a great question because ultimately you got to pay whatever you spend. So this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking, uh, Joe Bankman and I, about the new, uh, the new tax bill. And so I'm trying to figure out how could the how could intelligent people in the government decide to cut taxes by a huge amount and not cut spending? Are they planning on cutting the spending later? Are they planning on borrowing? How how does this work? Well, they're planning on borrowing it. So what we've done, in effect, is we've looked at our income tax statement. Here's a kind of a metaphor for you. And we've said, this is a lot of money I owe to pay for the government. I know what I'll do is I'll, I'll mortgage the family business. right? And we're calling that a tax cut. But because we're not spending money, it's really a tax shift. Instead of paying for it now... We borrowed it. That would be the mortgage we just took out. We have more cash today, but someday we're going to have to pay that back 
when the debt becomes due. So there's no reason to think that this tax bill is going to so vastly expand the economy that the lower taxes on a bigger economy will make up for this. Well, here's another—the answer is no, but here's another way to think of it. Suppose you did borrow all this money today. You'd have a lot of cash. You're not paying your taxes out of your savings. You're just borrowing it. Now you're awash in cash. You might spend more. That might be good for the local merchants. It would expand the economy a little bit temporarily. The problem is sooner or later you have to pay it back. And when you pay it back, that process starts working in reverse. Now you have less cash, and the local merchants find that you're not buying the good wine from them anymore, and they contract and the economy contracts. So does that mean that tax policy never really affects the overall economy? Well, you can have macroeconomic periods. That's what we call it, by the way, macroeconomic, when we talk about how we're stimulating demand. If there's not enough demand, there could be a free lunch there because we really want to get everybody to spend, spend, spend. And we've been in those situations. Is that like the Depression when we had the public works? That's exactly. Or the Great Recession when for a year we just tried to stimulate spending. Japan's been trying to do that for a decade. In those periods, there is a free lunch. If you spend money you don't have, you're really going to get it back because you're freeing people up. But we're in full employment right now, more or less. So we can't get that free lunch. The official estimates is that we'll get a little bit of a bump in the economy temporarily. And part of the tax cut will pay for itself. But when the dust settles, we'll be left with an extra trillion dollars of debt. And once we start paying for that, we'll be poor, not wealthier, because the economy is going to contract. And that's money that we're presumably paying. A lot of that debt is held by foreign banks right. and the like, right? So that's not that's not like I lent money to the government, and the government's going to pay me back, and I'm going to spend more. No, this is money that's going to go out of our system when and if we have to pay it back. Well, what do you mean when and if we have to pay it back? It's a, it's a good point. I, I should have said when. You know, there's always the issue of default, which seems unthinkable now. We know a lot of nations have such high debt, it's no longer so unthinkable. We think of nations like Greece, which are have overspent for decades, and now there is a question of default, or nations like Argentina, which have defaulted. Our debt has been, right now, one of our greatest assets, so to speak, because we get great rates when we borrow money. Everybody thinks of us as the most stable economy on earth, and they trust our markets, and they're willing to invest in property here, even at high prices, because they know we're a government that doesn't default. Yeah, and you know, and I can't help thinking that the money that we end up paying back is money we don't spend on social services or education or roads or the like. So if you were somebody who wanted to, you know, to use a quotation that you often hear from some conservatives, starve the beast, this is a great tax bill. It's brilliant. It's a win-win because you cut taxes today and you put it to the next administration or an administration that comes into power 10 or 20 years from now, what whether they could possibly maintain government services, because now all the money has to be paid out in the form of interest. So basically, it's a tax cut for people who are alive today and a tax increase for future generations. Absolutely. 
So we've been talking about the recent tax bill here on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand online or with the Sirius XM app.